I think people underrate how much cost each line of Solidity code bears. Because each extra line of code, you have to audit it, you have to maintain it, you have to test it. It's a potential source of a like, bug. Um, you have to you have to pay for it. And I think a lot of technical founders underrate the cost in long term. So they just excited and they write like 2000 line protocol, but then six months later, they found that their audit for 2000 line protocol is like 150K dollars. And my general advice would be try to write as less solidity code as possible to achieve your product, uh, product goals. And specifically, if you're not sure about some features, uh, just like drop them, just try to launch like absolutely minimal product the minimum solidity code and see where it go where it gets you and another advice is even in the buyer market uh, try to launch as soon as you can as fast as you can and get like first early adoptions as fast as you can because uh crypto market in particular seems to give a lot of a first mover advantage to protocols which launch faster Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Igor Yalovoy, a smart contracts engineer and former CTO of Babylon Finance. Igor has a really interesting uh, backstory. Uh, Babylon was a DeFi protocol that ended up shutting down recently after the Rari Capital exploit, but the team gave the whole project a really high integrity effort and it sounds like they learned a ton during the process. Igor walks through what it was like launching a new DeFi protocol during the frenzy of the bull market, and he also talks us through the lessons he took away from the experience. We cover subjects like testing smart contracts, preparing for audits, optimizations, and, and, and fun things he's proud of that he built, uh, solutions to the sometimes oppressive contract size limit in Solidity, which he actually just gave a, a talk on uh, at DevCon. There's a link in the, the show notes you can find about that. And we also go through how he personal personally levels up as a Solidity dev. This episode is a treasure trove of information for DeFi founders and technical folks alike. I hope you enjoy. Are you a DAO or crypto native business with salaried employees? Or do you perhaps work for one? If so, whether you're a team of five or 500, your organization can save time and money by streaming salaries with Superfluid, who also happens to be the beloved producer of this podcast. With salary streaming, your management team no longer has to worry about executing multi-sig operations every month or manually executing hundreds of separate transactions to pay their team. Contributors and employees, on the other hand, get paid by the second, which, to be honest with you, is a pretty killer benefit on the receiving end. Those of us getting paid via stream can connect our wallet to the Superfluid dashboard and see our balances ticking up in real time. It's kind of mesmerizing and feels like you're being jacked 10 years in the future. When you're paid in a stream, it flows in perpetuity until your team needs to adjust compensation, which effectively puts Web3 payroll on autopilot. Salary streaming is easy to set up thanks to our recent integration with CoinShift, the leading crypto treasury management platform. In just a few clicks, you can securely set up payroll for hundreds of employees in just a single transaction, all from CoinShift's dashboard. 
If this sounds like something you're interested in exploring, you should visit superfluid.finance/payroll and book a salary streaming demo today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Let's get on to the episode. All right, so we're here today with Igor. Welcome, man. Well, excited to be here and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, no, a previous guest, Santiago, who I think it was episode seven or eight, recommended that we, we chat and I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to connect. Uh, the first question we like to ask before we get into some of your other uh, technical thoughts and maybe some things on Babylon and your other work is how you got involved in, in, in crypto. Yeah, it's um, quite an interesting story. I've been in crypto for many years now, and I felt I first heard about it in the university many years ago, and I just thought it was only Bitcoin at the time, no Ethereum. So I thought, oh, it's like a very nice idea, but totally unpractical, and I slowly discarded it. But then I saw people, you know, keep pushing it, and I thought, oh, maybe it's something um, more sustainable. So I decided to bought some Bitcoin and because I bought some Bitcoin, I decided, well, I, I've got to understand how it works. So I studied all the, the cryptography, all the underlying technology um, around Bitcoin. It was easy for me because I was a software developer at the time already. And then it kind of hit me really hard it was some like almost like a magical moment. It was like a magical internet money. It's like finally we can have something better than accounting books, which is like lie around the world. And then I did like um, a project for Bitcoin. It was like a P2P um, exchange. And after that, the film appeared. I was blown away again because okay, you can write code for Bitcoin, but now you can uh, write code on-chain, like smart contracts. And it was just like, mind-blowing. So I started to play around with smart contracts and that eventually led to me doing some projects. And eventually I got into Open Zeppelin where I work on DevTools and um, Open GSN and Defender and other things and uh, met a lot of amazing people there. And after that, I co-founded Babylon um, Finance, which is a DeFi uh, protocol. And that's pretty much where the story ends right now. Nice. Yeah, I had a similar experience where I got involved more just conceptually, right? Bitcoin white paper, uh, started reading around, just reading articles from some of the thought leader types, right? Watching uh, Andreas Antonopoulos videos and stuff. And then I actually decided to learn how it works, right? So I, I can relate to that big time. Um, so you went from Open Zeppelin to founding a, an actual DeFi protocol, right? What was that like? Well, I'm like a technical co-founder and I want to give the credit for idea vision to Ramon, which who is like the other co-founder. So it was mostly he... The idea that um, people invest uh, as communities, um, not everyone, but some people, and it looked that there is no good protocol in DeFi at the moment, which allows you to do it. Let's say um, me 
and my friends, we want to invest in something together and share all the profits and losses. There were no good way to do it. Um, and this is the whole premises of Babylon Finance, as you can um, invest in various assets and strategies as a, as a club. We call them gardens. And the breakthrough was that in traditional funds, like hedge funds and mutual funds, there is always a manager who is like legally responsible for everything that's going on, but he or she makes a lot of decisions. And in Babylon Finance, it was obviously non-custodial, so people um, had to vote on actually what kind of financial decisions they make, so everyone uh, had their part of responsibility. Nice. So... You had this idea, you got involved with your co-founders who also obviously helped kind of incubate the idea. So I think what's interesting is for a lot of people that are engineers and have a lot of experience doing like more hardcore engineering work, the process of founding something feels a bit different sometimes, right? What, what was it like for you building the early MVPs and early versions of the protocol? Did you, did you guys take a kind of move fast mindset? Did you did you go slowly because you're working with smart contracts? I'd love to understand how you thought about some of those early technical decisions. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I don't know how our experience is typical for average DeFi project, but I'm totally willing to share it. So we had every founder was somewhat technical in our team, which was great. And we basically started building and launching the bull market. It was very clear to us that it's a bull market. And the bull market was special where it felt like every week you don't launch, you lose a lot of audience, TVL. So essentially, our development cycle was looking like a hackathon. We just sit down initially and the hack, like the one protocol, was very fast. And the DAP was also hacked very fast. And then um, after we had our MVP, all our contracts were great about. And so not only we like, shipped the V1 very fast, we also were constantly uh, upgrading features, adding new features. And the whole like, life cycle was insanely fast. I mean, I think it was like the fastest moving project I ever worked because we literally could feel how like, the power market was like moving projects and capital forward. So it, every week it felt it matters. Um, to give you an example, I was responsible for most deploys on our protocol. And we would have just like months where I would deploy some contracts mainnet every week, like literally like every week. Well, we, our protocol had many contracts. So it's not like everything deployed every week, but... We were like, okay, this is done, like ship it. And obviously the biggest concern for us was the security uh, because, well, first of all, security is like number one priority if you build DeFi protocol. Uh, and second, sort of auditors, they don't move that fast, especially like the popular one, the good one, you have to book them ahead and they don't move up fast. And so you have this sort of dilemma, do you launch now without having like a proper audit or you wait for a proper audit and you launch then. And sort of my conclusion was that um, even if you have an audit, you're likely to have some changes after this. So 
essentially you should not rely on Audi as being silver light bullet. You should build like your own internal security, security processes from day zero. So you can rely on them mostly. And then Audi is just sort of a cherry on top of a cake. And we were like very uh, test heavy from the start. And especially we had a lot of like integration tests, uh, essentially mainnet fork tests. And sort of my security uh, model was that as a, as a protocol, as a black box, which money goes in and out. And if you can isolate with tests well with parts where the money goes in and out and test them really well, then it makes it hard to attack. And I think that would, was allowed us to iterate fast without compromising security much. Essentially, you have these parts where you move money in and out, and they like more sort of uh, you like more careful around them. But then a lot of things inside protocol, which where like the money moves into the side protocol, then you have like more freedom around there. Uh, hope it gives like some insight of what kind of like vibe and culture we had there. And I guess the final part, it came, a lot of it came at like a cost of personal sacrifice of founders is not having like vacations and working on weekends, which was like uh, quite stressful. And so to answer the question about balance, where was like no balance? <laughs> I mean, it's just like work, work, work. <laughs> Yeah, the I, the bull market by itself, even you know, even if you weren't a founder, was crazy. I, I can't imagine it as a founder in DeFi itself, right? It was probably, it was probably very intense. One question for you on the integration test, right? I think, like, do you have any general advice on testing code that's being touched by a lot of different contracts and other protocols in the ecosystem, right? Because I've seen a couple different schools of thought on this, right? I've seen some people say that you should um, create mocks for everything. Right, and just try to mock up different different situations. Provide inputs to the different mock contracts, or using the mock contracts to provide inputs. Use fuzzing, um, but it sounds like you forked mainnet and you tried to just get the best simulation that you could, given where the current state of the chain was. Like, I would love to understand, like, whether or not you have any general advice on on, on testing contracts that are very composable like that. Well, it's an excellent question, and I haven't seen much of this work done in the wild. And our, our solution to this was because Babylon Finance was aggregation protocol, so it would use all other protocols, compound, other Uniswap, synthetics, uh, many, many of them, is we had essentially three layers of tests. And I, I called them essentially unit tests, integration tests, and end-to-end -end tests. And this is about only like Solidity protocol. Unit tests are pretty pretty common. This is what you see in all the Solidity tutorials. And then integration tests, a bit more tricky. You want to test how components inside your systems interact with each other, but you don't want necessarily test like all externalities, like Uniswap Exchange or Compound. So you would write mock uh, for mocks for these protocols, which like would have reasonable assumptions and return some like easy numbers to test, let's say like fixed prices for exchange, like one Ethereum is $1,000, which allows you to build um, somewhat sound tests, which are easy to write and easy to maintain. And then finally, you would have what they call end-to-end -end tests, is where you would just go uh, full hard uh, fork mainnet, and you would literally 
minus fork all the com- all the protocols you use like Uniswap Compound. All right, so let let's say that someone comes to you, right? They know you have lots of experience as a as a former founder of a DeFi protocol, and says, "Hey, listen, like I have this idea for a DeFi project. It's a good idea. Uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to be the CTO." Um, you went through it, Igor. Do you have any general advice for me? This could be technical advice. This could be more like business style advice, or it could be personal advice, right? Well, what would you say to, to that individual? I know personal advice, uh, like measure your pain tolerance, uh, but let's focus on technical advice. I would say I'm reading right now quite a bit of like protocols, source code, just for fun. And I think people underrate how much cost each line of solidity code bears because each extra line of code you have to audit it, you have to maintain it, you have to test it. It's a potential source of a like bug. Um, you have to you have to pay for it. And I think a lot of technical founders underrate the cost in long term. So they just excited and they write like two thousand line protocol, but then six months later they found that their audit for two thousand line protocol is like one hundred fifty k dollars. And my general advice would be try to write as less solidity code as possible to achieve your product uh, product goals. And specifically, if you're not sure about some features, uh, just like drop them. Just to try to launch like absolutely minimal product, the minimum solidity code, and see where it go where it gets you. And another advice is even in the buyer market. And try to launch as soon as you can, as fast as you can, and get like first early adoptions as fast as you can because uh, crypto market in particular seems to give a lot of a first mover advantage to protocols which launch faster. Um, classical examples like LIDAR versus Rocket Pool, LIDAR launched a bit earlier. And they at the moment, at the time, Rocket Pool did launch their product, which is, um, is a great product. Light already had like six billion TVL, so it's like you're like six billion TVL later. It's not easy to like overcome, and I feel it's it comes in like many many other like niches in uh, blockchain. So try to launch as fast as you can, and try to uh, write as least uh, solidity code as you can. And the final advice would be: make security is your priority number one. I see so many hacks and honestly a lot of them are embarrassing you know the mistakes they made embarrassing for like solidity developers are just such a, uh, obvious mistakes and so to avoid these obvious mistakes always put like focus on security and almost and, and focus on your in-house security don't like rely on audits to solve all the problems for you it's not what happens so essentially write tests like define processes how you like upgrade things, have a, like a multi-seek for operations, you know, don't use like your hot wallet and MetaMask to just like <laughs> upgrade the protocol. You know, it's like put focus on dev operation security as well and security in general. So it's better, it's rather better to have a minimal secure protocol which will outlive all the competition because all the competition gets hacked. And just in a couple of years, you're like the only one staying there. 
Yeah, that's that's one way to stay around for sure. Just outlast everybody. Don't get get hacked last, or don't ideally don't get hacked at all. Um, so okay, so going back to your time at Open Zeppelin, right? I think you're you were in an interesting spot where you went from someone I think I would imagine building tooling for this space in some capacity, uh, maybe even on the audit side. I'm not sure what you did there, but you went from that side to actually probably using the tooling and having to operate and and like ship a real product, right? Using some of that that tooling. Uh, do you have any specific perspectives on the kinds of tooling that you wish people would build for this space after going on the the actual founder and protocol side? I think as all developers, we appreciate tooling. Tooling is great because when there is no tooling, you just do tooling for yourself. And I think it's fair to say the tooling in in Web3 is first of all lacking compared to traditional tech, the Web2. And it's it's also underfunded because if you're doing tooling, you're not launching this new exciting token. This is not handing you millions of dollars. And it's mostly made like it's like a public goods domain. Okay, Gitcoin is doing something to help with this, which I appreciate a lot. But unless you can turn your tooling into some SaaS model or some token model, it's very hard to earn money with this. And as like as like a dev tools developer, which I was at some point in Open Zeppelin, you just see this like huge space of dev tooling. It's it's literally infinite. It's like any direction you look, you can improve things, you can make new things, you can like 10x things. Um, and there is just not enough time or manpower or knowledge. It's it's such it's such as like underinvested space in, in all directions, and I'm I'm really excited to see what's like tooling being five years. I, I imagine it's going to be like much better, and I hope we just can like enjoy our development process more. And uh, and it's like funny. My story particularly is very funny because I was working on Defender, which had like a set of components, outer task layer, and then I just transitioned from Defender to Babylon Finance. And we just started to use it like from day zero. And we used it like a lot to send like automated transactions and to run basically AWS lambdas for things we have to do at the protocol. And it was like a great, great help because uh, sending transactions in an automated way to Ethereum is not an easy task. You know, you can hack something simple in, in like a weekend, but your transactions eventually gonna stuck because there are a lot of edge cases around sending transactions to Ethereum. And this is what I've seen a lot of other projects struggle. Essentially, every time you have insufficient tooling, you have to invest like your resources and effort in improving these things. But as a startup, you have no time for like anything extra. You barely have time for a product. And so if you're a startup, you have to spend time on doing not like your main product, it really brings you down because you just can't afford it. It's like as a startup, you'd rather pay, I don't know, like $1,000 a month to solve a problem, which is not like your core problem, than to spend like very limited time of your engineering team on building a tooling. And I know some like bigger companies or mobile finding companies, they can, you know, just like produce public goods for everyone. And I appreciate the effort. But I think most startups just in, not in this position where like the whole engineering team is like two, three people. You just can't like dedicate one person to write, let's say, like a hard hat testing library, right? It sounds great, but you just don't have this budget in terms of time and effort. Yeah, that that makes total sense. 
And I'm sure you had a really good perspective on it when you did make that shift, right? Uh, so, okay, let's say someone comes to you and they're like, hey, uh, you know, I'm either an entrepreneurial person or I just want to build some really useful public good. Was there anything in particular that really stood out in your time at Babylon that you just wish someone would have built for you guys? Um, uh, yeah, I think, I think, well, yeah, I think we had, I had to write quite a lot of custom scripting around deploying contracts because Babylon um, is a complex system. It had about like 20 contracts on our like, deployment script. And um, we used hard hat at the time and hard hat had this like naive sort of how do we deploy a contract uh, script, but it wasn't like any good for a like, real production system. And then I discovered like a plugin for Hardhead. It was called Hardhead Deploy. I mean, it had its own issues, but I built like more of a system on top of it, which was a custom power project. But again, as I'm saying, if you have to build like a custom tool for your project, it's probably not a good sign. And I know Hardhead is now working on this project called Hardhead Ignition, which is like advanced deployment system. But as far as I know, it's not yet published or live. So this problem is still unsolved. And I recently looked at like Forge deployment scripts, which you're supposed to write in Solidity. And in my opinion, they even less sort of uh, ready for battle test production ready system. And I think this niche is pretty much unsolved to this day because you want like certain properties from your deployment system that it can recover if like the internet is fails at some point that it can make, it can manage like gas pricing spikes because like in the bull market, if you deploy a lot of contracts, it costs a lot of money. So it's not like you just want to deploy contracts, right? You want to deploy contracts at certain price and a certain budget, which is like never mentioned with Solidity tutorials. It's like, oh, just like deploy a contract and then like deploying contract at current gas price is like 20K. <laughs> it's like, all right, yeah, great. And uh, you need all sorts of like, Features which allows like recovery, uh, controlling gas prices, and like extra deployments after you deploy. So let's say you deploy and then you only want to redeploy certain components, and then you you want to be able to specify like different deployments parameters on different chains, or maybe some arguments has changed. There is like a big leap between going from like solidity tutorial deployment where you know is everything is like shining and butterflies to go into this like brutal real world where where well another example it's like sometimes deployer has quite a few rights right and then maybe you want to deploy from like a multi-seek or from a hardware wallet which is also like i saw lacking support for this and there is some support but it's also not ideal. And I mean, if someone makes a product which addressed this like sort of um, high state production ready systems, I would be like super happy to see um, everyone to use it. Uh, you heard that, boys and girls. Look for, Igor's looking for nice, robust, high quality deployment tooling. And that makes a lot of sense, right? I think, and I, I, I think you're absolutely right. There is a huge delta between the beautiful, easy world of the Solidity tutorial and production. I'm, I'm totally with you there. Um, so you made a comment earlier, actually, as well on on uh, lines of code in Solidity all carrying like a lot of weight to them. 
uh, a similar topic here, right? This is a little bit less on security and more on just a, a DevX thing. But you gave a presentation, a very good presentation, by the way, at DevCon about contract size limit. Um, and this, so this is something that I think most people that have written Solidity Code and smart contracts have run into. There's this really annoying 24 kilobyte contract size limit, right? Where you try, if you're trying to write a very complex system, you, you're probably going to run into this at some point, uh, unless you're unless you're somehow very smart or very lucky. Um, so, can you give us an outline of, you know, the problem and some of your potential solutions and and the potential routes for getting around this contract size limit? Yes, it's a favorite topic of mine because I personally suffered immensely from it, and I recently discovered I'm not the only one. Uh, I believe you had Nicholas from Balancer on one of the episodes, and I can quote him. He said, um, contract size limit is bane of my existence. And I think it's very poetic. I love it. And I think it's a perfect trap to a lot of founders and projects, because if you have upgradable contract, then eventually there will be more features. You'll find some bug fixes and uh, each like Solidity compiler seems to generate more and more fatty code. And as your project like naturally evolves, you eventually hit this like 24 kilobyte limit. But if you haven't thought from the start about this limit, uh, you are in very nasty position because um, all sorts of optimizations for bytecode, which are like external libraries or bytecode golfing, they um, uh, they have major drawbacks, they're gas inefficient, and they may possess security risks, and they don't solve the problem uh, in this sort of grand way where you literally have like unlimited control size where you can write as many code uh, as you want. And a transition from already existing project uh, with a contract size limit to a mm, truly unlimited contract size somewhat technically challenging and there is no good materials online as far as i know uh finally with some light shedding this problem we have this um ep2535 by nick match and then there is like some work which synthetic does and then there is like my presentation with some slides and the repo uh, but i feel we're still very early i think eventually for uh for upgradable protocols it will be sort of a default to be unlimited size because protocols get more complicated and and the like solidity compiler produce more and more bytecode with each version but the bytecode size limit doesn't move anywhere so i feel the future is that everyone will default uh, reasonably to like one or the other architecture to our unlimited size contract um I think I'm drifting slightly away from like original uh, question, just to give a bit more experience that uh, Babylon Finance, we didn't design our sort of clubs or gardens, which is the main contract for holding all the assets. And originally to be unlimited size, and that was like a big problem for us. We did bite-sized golfing for some time to like put more and more features. But at some point, I felt it starts to compromise our securities because if you if you have to remove some code to get more space, you have just a few options. And one of them is basically turn some lines, solidity lines to assembly, which kind of do the same. 
but now you're in this like assembly realm where you don't have this like, compiler guarantees anymore, or you can sort of uh, compromise some security checks, which you should never do. And I mean, it's like a terrible idea. I advise never anyone to do it. Uh, but I've seen, you know, people do it for like to reduce the bytecode size. And these are like basically deadlocks. So you have to go unlimited times from, from this point. And this is what we had to do. And we did it successfully. And I can, I can give more details, but like back to you. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, you do outline why it's an important problem, right? Because you don't want people to compromise on code quality just to meet some arbitrary limit. That that seems dumb, right? Uh, so I guess one, one follow-up question on that is like, so you went through the different in your talk, and I'll be sure to link to the talk. You guys should go watch it, especially if this is a curiosity of yours. But in your talk, you you outline like the three approaches, right? So like external libraries, I think you had like the pre-compiled router and then the dynamic router. Which of, I mean, each of those have trade-offs, right? But which of those, if any, do you have a, a preference for you know, in your own work and in your own contracts? Well, my, my own opinion, and uh, I think external libraries are not a great abstraction in Solidity at all, because external libraries is just abstraction over delegate code, which should EVM or P-code, but it, it's very limited in a sense what um, you can do with it. And it seems to be gas inefficient, is like pointed down in my slides. And so I think for some serious production projects, which handles millions of dollars, you, you, you wouldn't use it to achieve uh, unlimited contract size. And then your only real option then is to use some kind of router. As you mentioned, there is two of them, is a static router and dynamic router. And the only difference well, we have a difference in gas overhead costs. The dynamic router is more expensive, but they essentially work in the same way. The only difference is that a dynamic router is fetching implementation for a method signature from a contract storage, where the static router has uh, each implementation address pre-compiled for each method signature, and so it can't be upgraded. And I obviously advise to go with static routers if you can. I mean, if you're not planning to upgrade your protocol and it's like set in stone, it's like super great because static router is great, it has the best gas efficiency and it doesn't have any sort of security concerns because no one can update implementation. So there's no way someone, you compromise your protocol by adding this like a, a malicious function which just like transfers all the funds to the hacker. But the reality is that many people will face bugs in the future and the standards change and product needs new features. So many projects will go with dynamic router because they just need this functionality. And here again, you can get like this reference implementation of EP2535, which is like pretty good level right now. I recommend everyone checking it out. But there can be other sort of implementations. Um, the notable one is with this import with a pretty cool proxy, which is called Bacon Proxy, which we use at uh, Babylon Finance. It's then you have many instances of the same contract. Let's say like a typical example of wallet, right? Uh, you don't want to deploy a wallet contract, a new wallet contract for each user. You can just use the same implementation contract to save on gas. So instead of deploying uh, implementation contract for every user, you should deploy the minimal proxy, which just like points to a wallet. 
and uh, you save a lot on gas for these for users. And we did the same for our gardens. They were beacon proxy, and beacon proxies. I haven't seen a beacon proxy dynamic router implementation out there. So you would essentially I'm saying, depending on your project, you would need to get creative of how you combine these like proxies with dynamic routers because the dynamic routers does use proxies. The proxy has some like different usages. Um, where various, various kinds of proxies, I guess what I'm trying to say. And I would say the most important part is they sit down at day zero and design your architecture because these are the most important things. You can't really change them very well down the road. So you should absolutely be sure whenever you need unlimited size contract or not from the start. So if you're like a solidity dev or technical founder and you're just about launching your project, you should really sit down and think really hard on will you hit this limit or not. And I suggest to be rather sort of pessimistic than optimistic. So if you're not sure, then probably go with unlimited contract because it's better, you know, to overspend a bit on the gas than to be really sorry like six months later. Yep, I think that's good advice. And thanks for giving the overview and the the mention of the beacon, that beacon pattern as well. I think that'd be interesting to, to see someone pair that with a dynamic router. Uh, maybe maybe a listener can can do that and send it to us. Um so, okay, so when we talk about optimizations, right, one question that I like to ask a lot of people that come on that are that are Solidity, Solidity developers is how they think about gas optimization and gas golfing, right? So let, let's say someone comes to you and they say, hey, listen, I I have this protocol that I, I, I have an implementation for. I haven't really deployed my contracts yet, right? So like I have some I have some time where I can go back through and make some optimizations. How should I approach this process? What would you say to that person? Great question. So, on a personal note, I think gas golfing is an excellent game. I think we need to make some like EVM gas golfing game and leaderboard, and everyone can play it. And then we can know who is like the best gas golfer in the world. It's very valuable. But unlike product side and being like reliable engineering and doing serious engineering, I would say, first of all, like never do any premature guest golfing guest optimizations i see a lot of protocols they just like starting to write code and you look at it and it's already using a lot of guest tricks i would say generally don't do that because it makes code harder to read you know always like build inverted for loops and when you increment the counter it's like it's like ah and especially like if you use some assembly or even like EVM code, very hard to follow, very hard to audit. Your auditors will be really upset about it. I can guarantee that. And then just leave gas optimizations until the end uh, before deploying. And then if you at the point before deploying, I would say you have to understand that there is a cost to gas optimization and it usually comes at cost of security. So each guest optimization is somewhat compromising security whenever you believe it or not. It is my opinion. And then what I particularly did for Babylon Finance, I basically built a heat map of all the functions. Essentially, how often the functions are called and who is calling them. For example, we had like admin modular, which is like admin functions, which are called only by like team and privileged accounts. And I was like, 
like zero guest optimizations for that. Like we don't care about the price. It's like we call them rarely and we call them ourselves so we can like eat the bullet. And then our like core optimized guest functions, we are basically deposit, which we put funds in, withdraw, put funds out, and then the claim so you can claim your rewards. And these are the most like, guest sensitive functions because like your average user is like paying their hard earned dollars to call them. And these are the functions we were really guest optimizing because we wanted to give our users the best deal. But we have a lot of functions which were like uh, had like shared costs between all the users that were paid by the DAO. Essentially, like we were like less sensitive to the cost, and we were not like putting any guest optimization effort in that. Essentially, I guess what I'm saying, unless there is a specific financial reason to guest optimize a method, just like don't do it. It's like we, we, we developed the whole concept of high-level languages so we don't need to write an assembly. I mean, I know some people write to write the assembly, but please like leave it for your hobby projects. Don't like bring it to like, the major protocols. Uh, yeah, I guess that's like my standing on this. It's a bit opinionated, but it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, I've I've heard similar opinions actually. So I interviewed um Sam McPherson, who's an engineer at Maker, and his quote on it was, "It doesn't matter how optimized your contract is if it gets hacked, right? All the gas savings go out the window if you get hacked." So worth keeping that in mind. Um, one of the th- so you mentioned auditors a couple times in here, right? Namely, that auditors might not like if your entire all your contracts are all written in assembly. Um, that might not be fun, but. So, I mean, you spent time at Open Zeppelin. I don't think you were an auditor at Open Zeppelin, but you, I mean, Open Zeppelin does audits, right? So that's part of the mindset maybe of the organization. And you had to engage auditors as a CTO of a DeFi protocol. Do you have any advice for someone that, that is going to engage auditors for the first time? Like how, how, do you, how do you prep for an audit? Yeah, certainly. So yeah, I've been again lucky at Open Zeppelin. I wasn't an auditor, but I was working close to them. I have friends with many of them. I kind of understand their mentality. And then at Backbone, as you say, I had to be on another uh, on another side of the temp- table. I mean, the good part was I already knew many companies and auditors and had like good connections with them, so we could you know work together. Uh, and I do have advice, and it's mostly like non-technical advice. To be fair, I think this is where people fail in non-technical stuff because auditors they had their own set of like goals and values and expectations when you know the projects you deploy and i would say try to book an audit as early as you can is basically if you committed to build a protocol and you have like a timeline and a roadmap you just start messaging auditors like immediately because for some good companies uh the timeline can be like six months from today so like six months is the best is the best time you can get a time slot. So if you're not doing it immediately, you may be just not getting Audi before you have to go like main it. And then once you get your timeline, uh, try to like communicate to auditors like as much as you can in a sense, like what they expect to receive or what you expect to receive from them and try to like understand how they their process and how they do things is like how they rate the issues right what's considered critical what's considered um uh i don't know high severity or like can you can they like amend them basically 
you know, some people, they don't, they don't want to receive a report which says, oh, you have a critical vulnerabilities, right? So then they message auditors, oh, actually, we fixed the bug, so can you like, remove it from the report? And now it is like, no, we can't. And then people get upset. So I guess just to try to understand the process and try to communicate well, especially if it's your first time. Uh, I would suggest go and read previous reports of a certain company to get an idea what you're getting. And just put people first, right? If there's some kind of an issue, just like uh, don't expect the worst, expect the best and you know, try to communicate uh and just be like polite and humble uh i guess what i see in this field is a lot of companies they fail mostly on the social side of things not the uh not the technical because we're like misunderstandings and that they handled well and that kind of results to delays and people being upset on both sides um yeah that would be the advice yeah, that's good advice. And I appreciate you sharing um, some of the thoughts there, right? I, I do think that some of the social things are probably the most, where most of the misunderstandings arise from, right? It's just, you know, it's, it's how you'd handle any other business relationship, but it's worth, it's worth keeping that in mind, right? Everyone's really proud of the work they've done and they don't like back and forth necessarily come up with auditors, but sometimes, you know, they're just doing their job and you're, you're better off assuming positive intent always. So I think that's good advice. Uh, okay, on, on some some other fun things. Uh, this is a question we like to ask a lot, right? Because everyone always has a, a, a kind of an interesting answer to this. But are there any really interesting optimizations or design patterns that you've implemented somewhere, whether it's in the Babylon code base or somewhere else that you're just really proud of and you'd like to call out? Yeah, I'm working on one thing right now, which I bought probably rather soon. And I was like genuinely surprised no one did it. It seems somewhat obvious to me but i talked to some like best people in the field and they're just like yeah like you're right but we were busy with other stuff so we don't have to do time to do it which again i guess probably our field is so immature that you have like a bunch of like low hanging fruits there are probably a lot of them and it's just like not enough people just to go and collect them and so my idea i call it now a loaded proxy uh, which I'm working right now. It's like very simple to explain. So I will use USDC as example. USDC stablecoin is a smart contract, and it's a proxy smart contract. And it's super quick how a proxy smart contract works. When you call a contract, you actually call a proxy, which then through diligent calls calls the implementation. And one the issue of a proxy contracts it has a guest overhead, namely like diligent called plus like surrounding like packing and packing arguments, guest costs, and it can be somewhere from, I don't know, two and a half thousand guests to like, slightly more values. And then, okay, so, and all the methods of USDC as a coin, they're, they're proxied. So what any method you call, you pay the guest overhead premium. And then ERC20 standard has functions like decimal and decimal function is you see is usdc it returns just like a number which is a constant i forgot what it is like eight or six decimals usdc use and if you look at the gas cost of usdc returning the decimal method it's like 150 gas like literally is the gas cost of this method of implementation but if you call it for the proxy it's like 2600 so it's like 
gas overhead to calling this method. And the number of this, and then why this method is important when you use USDC inside your DeFi protocol, you have to know how many decimals you see 20 token has, because if you don't know, you can't like do the math and value it. And so every protocol which uses USDC is calling the decimals. And every protocol is like overpaying this gas on this method. And with like just like millions of transactions, I'm actually gonna run a Dune script to just like see how much money were wasted. And so my proposal, I call it loaded proxy, is that um, you, 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 you put the methods, you should turn constants, not on the implementation itself, but on the proxy. It's like, what's the chance your contract will change the number of decimals it's going to return? It's, it seems like impossible. I mean, if you're going to change the decimals of number of USDC is going to return, you probably have an issue, right? And this will result in like 99% gas efficiency for this method. And with other methods like this, like symbol, right, is also constant. Essentially, any method which is a constant, you can put it on the proxy itself instead of implementation because it's reasonably safe. And then, then I talk to people who are good at this stuff, especially at Open Zeppelin, uh, why it's not been done. Uh, first of all, like we are busy with other stuff, but another good answer was is that there is this like, canonical code of a proxy contract from Open Zeppelin, which like as everyone afraid to touch, right? Because you touch it and things explode, and you have to put like called on this. And then another answer, actually it's pretty funny because it's go back to the original conversation. There is like zero tooling for this, right? Even if I publish it tomorrow and explain everything step by step and how cool is it, there will be still zero tooling to like sort of automate it, to make it secure, to make it checks, you know, like the best you can do is probably write tests that like your contract still, you know, performs as you expect. But there still will be like zero tooling for this. You would literally have to go and to sort of write your proxy on proxy, probably inherit from Open Zeppelin. And then you would have to inherit from some like uh, implementation part, you know, like return this like a decimal, decimal number for is 20. But essentially you have to do the work yourself with no like any tooling or library which will do like all the heavy lifting for yourself. And you have to be responsible for all this. And then we go back to that, oh, it's just like a guess optimization, right? So why would you like, risk your protocol for a guess optimization so no one does it? But it's sort of stupid because we can save a lot of gas. So it's kind of mm, interesting topic, I would say. That's really interesting. I actually did not, I had no idea that that was actually happening, right? I, I mean, the, the root cause problem here with USDC in particular is whoever at Circle decided to make it six decimals or eight decimals or whatever it is, just is putting us all through it. But, you know, I'm glad people like you were thinking about how to how to solve for this after the fact. So that's good. Um, a couple other questions for you. Um, I know we're running up on time a little bit. Uh, one, a little more specific toward technical stuff, and then one where I'll zoom out. But the first one is, you know, I, I mentioned that a lot of people that listen to this, they, they like technical things. They, they Honestly, a lot of the stuff you said today is, I think it's going to be great for people to hear just in terms of learning and for approaching the process of building a protocol. But what have you done personally throughout your career to level up as a developer? Um, is there anything you do in terms of personal development, any habits you have that you think if other people adopted them, that it would also help them? 
Yeah, I mean, I've been developer for 15 years, so I think I'm going to focus on Solidity stuff because I guess the most audience is around this. So I, I like that in Solidity, we're in this like, really new innovative world and the result of great games, which personally helped me a lot to have fun and just polish my skills. So I highly recommend doing Open Zeppelin, uh, FNL challenges if you haven't done them. Even if you like a pro, still do them because they're just fun. And then there is a them vulnerable DeFi, which is like sort of challenges focused on DeFi, pretty fun to hack by Tincho. Uh, and then there is an amazing challenge from Paradigm. It's called uh, Paradigm CTF. It's been it's it's run every year, but I think you can still uh, solve old levels, and they're like super advanced. It's like Paradigm CTF challenges are like on another level. It will make your brain to boil, but it's totally worth it. And then the second advice is I would say do like a shadow audits. And now you don't even need to do shadow audits. Just go to Immunify, go to um, Cold Arena and just like audit other projects. It will make you a better developer instantly because you will see new patterns, new like language contracts, constructs you haven't seen before. And you just like learning by reading it, by trying to hack it, by running tests. And the upside, you just get paid money. I just recently submitted like one issue and just got paid like $1,000 on Polygon and just like a fun and, you know, it's money in the end. It's like super great. Nice. Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, some of the challenges on, on uh, Damn Vulnerable DeFi and the Paradigm CTFs are all, are all really good. I mean, obviously varying levels of difficulty, right? If you're going to go compete in the, the Paradigm CTF, you better be ready to go. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's, that's excellent advice. Uh, okay, La- last question for you. This is much more general, but you know, as someone who's been around crypto for a long time, right? You you followed this whole thing, right? Back going all the way back to like some of the earlier Bitcoin days. Um, you've seen some evolution in terms of the industry in the last five or so years, I'd imagine. What do you hope our industry looks like five to ten years in the future, right? What do you What do you hope we build? What do you hope What do you hope things look like? Yeah, I'm going to focus on that side of things. Um, and so I have two hopes here. First, around DevTooling, it's like if you go on the car level, uh, if you compare DevTooling with cars, I think right now we, we're all driving this like right now, super like budget, you know, like cranky old rusty cars. And it just, it can like get you from A to B, but the whole experience is like terrible. It's shaking, no EC. You know, you're afraid of like accident, aka getting hacked. And I hope like in next few years, DevTooling gets so good that it feels like driving you know, like a Mercedes. Essentially, it's like enjoyable to use tools. They're like, so good. You just like, with like every tool you want, it's there and you just use it. I mean, it's fine. You have to pay money. And, but it's just there. And I hope we get at least to like web tool level tooling, which would be great. And my another point is that. I hope so the blockchain right now, if you look at tech in general, we have like front end, back end, uh, desktop, uh, mobile, and people there, they kind of, on some level, they isolated from crypto with sort of a negative, negative connotation to the degree to blockchain development. And if you want to move, let's say from, I don't know, mobile to front end, it's like nothing wrong with this, it's like fine. But since transition from like Web 2 to Web 3 has like higher cost of bear right now. And I hope that Web 3 and blockchain in particular gets just to be like 
another job, you know, you just can go to always like co-working and meetings. It's like, oh, what do you do? I do like front end. I am doing blockchain and it's just like fine. And no one has any sort of uh, social preconstructs or preconditions. So people just like moving transition fluently from, you know, blockchain to front end, back end, whatever. And no one even thinks it's a big deal or have like any negative connotation because in the end, it's just like technology, right? All the financial stuff, it just on top of the technology, but it's not inherently part of technology, I guess. And I think my other sort of wish is like, I'm super excited about recent cryptography advancements, like zero knowledge proofs, polynomial commitments. And, you know, I feel like crypto is pushing uh, cryptography forward like way faster than it used to be. And I feel, I hope we sort of grow cryptography to the point that it bears this like magnificent fruit of technology which can empower you know, society and humankind, we can have these like neutral platforms and protocols for everything and privacy for everything without compromising, you know, stuff. So essentially I'm like huge believer in solving things through cryptography. So, and I hope it like plays out in the next few years. Yeah. Very good answer. Very good answer. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on cryptography. It's something that you know, I, I had known about all like the code breaker type of stuff if you go back to World War II and that and that kind of thing. But a lot of the modern cryptography and advancements around ZKPs is is very cool. I mean, it is moon math, right? So you gotta really be ready to to dive in if you're gonna go get into it. But I'm with you; it's very cool. Uh, anyways, Igor, thank you so much for coming on. This was a really really good episode in terms of all the knowledge you dropped and shared, uh, and I think our listeners are gonna really like it. So thank you again. Pleasure was mine. Thank you for having me. So much appreciated. And everyone, have a nice day.